I just love our missionaries, don't you? I mean, what a blessing um, to be partnering with men and women who are giving of their lives around the world to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know what is so uh, inspiring to me as I hear JJ talk about church in West, West Africa is how transferable the Bible is. It's timeless in that way. We could be in any culture and the principles of Scripture apply to someone in West Africa just as much as they do to you and I here in the United States of America. Isn't that incredible? Well, this morning, as we continue in our series, Know Thy Enemy, I think we need to acknowledge this morning how awesome the persuasive powers of the enemy must be. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at Satan's weapons, or you could think of it as the tools of his trade or his strategies. And as we delve into the scriptures on this matter, we're going to see that he has incredible persuasive powers. He's a master at utilizing his weapons. Why do I say that? Well, Satan is responsible for two falls. Two great falls. The first fall was the fall of the angelic realm. We don't have a passage of Scripture that I would say comes right out and says this. Satan caused one-third of the angelic realm to fall. But as you look at Revelation 12 and you look at the context, I think you can actually extrapolate that that is indeed what happened from the Scriptures. Let's take a look at Revelation 12, 3 through 9 for just a moment. The text says, Behold, a great red dragon. That's another symbol for Satan in the Scripture. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And then we jump to verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and the angels were thrown down with him. I don't have time to unpack all of Revelation 12 for you this morning. Uh, Hopefully at some point we get into the book of Revelation. I think that would be a great study for Sunday morning for church. As you look at this, what I understand is there is actually a picture of two falls in this text. The first, of course, is what happened before humanity, right? And remember, the stars, we talked about this last week, can be symbolic of angels. That verse 9 is actually talking about a second fall that happens in the end times. And it's there that you connect the dots. He sweeps his tail, a third of the stars fall. And in that other fall, you see it says that his angels fall with him. And that's where we get this idea that one third of the angels went with Satan when he fell. Now, it's incredible when you think about it. In Scripture, we get the sense, as you look at passages, that there is millions, if not even billions, of angels. One-third of all the angels go with Satan. Here you have the angelic beings who stood and looked at and beheld the glory of God. And they weren't forced to do this. They were deceived. Like I said, his persuasive powers are incredible. We're going to look at a second fall now, and this is the fall of humanity. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And as we look at 
how Satan interacts with Eve in this passage, we're going to see a pattern that remains true of how he operates all throughout time in history. I want to begin by looking at his first strategy in this passage. Satan comes in disguise. The text opens like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Makes me think of this story. There's a little boy, first grader, and he's in class, and the teacher is reading the story of the three little pigs. Great story, good moral lesson brought to us in that story. As she's telling this story, she starts building it up, making it really dramatic, She tells the class that the first little pig is going out and he's trying to find the building materials for his house. So he runs into a man with a wheelbarrow full of straw and he stops the man and says, Excuse me, sir, how much for all of the straw of this wheelbarrow? Now the teacher pauses for a moment and she says to the class, And what do you think the man said to the little pig? And the little boy, he raises his hand excitedly. He says, I know, I know. Holy smokes, a talking pig. (laughs) Now, Satan never comes to you as the devil. He never comes as the adversary of God. He always comes in disguise. He's always in disguise. As you look at Scripture... This snake that comes to Eve is a talking serpent, as odd as that sounds. Now, you can't think of the slithering creature that you think of today, the kind of creature that my youngest son thinks is the coolest thing in the world and my oldest daughter thinks is the creepiest thing in the world. No, this creature was attractive, beautiful. And that's always paradigmatic of how Satan comes. When he comes to you, he doesn't come with bright warning colors that that just shout at you, stay back. He doesn't come to you like a roaring lion. He doesn't have a name tag on his shirt that says, hi, my name is Satan. No, he just kind of slides in to your life. You might not even recognize him. You might not even take him seriously And he's okay with that. Have you ever thought what it would be like if Satan were to tell the truth when he tempted you? I mean, just envision this scenario for a moment. He comes in, he tries to tempt you honestly. Satan says to you, you know, I think it would be a really good idea if you cheated on your spouse with that person at the gym. And you reply, you say, ah, no, that's not a great idea. That would really hurt my spouse. I could never do anything like that. So Satan says, okay, well, fair enough. You make a good point. But here's what we'll do. We'll run a cost-benefit analysis for you, and I've come up with a couple of things that you might want to consider. First, let's consider the benefits. Here's one benefit. A few moments of physical, if not awkward, pleasure. And then we go to the costs. One, disobedience to God. Two, erode your communion with God. Three, ruin or even possibly end your marriage. Four, humiliate your wife. 
Five, mess up your kids' lives. Six, public humiliation and exposure. Seven, dishonor and disgrace to your church. Eight, wreck your witness for Christ. Huh, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Um, no thank you, Satan. I think I would prefer a different route altogether. But he never comes to you like that. He always comes in disguise. He's like a fisherman. He puts an attractive bait on the hook. He says, listen, you deserve to experience a little excitement in your life. I've brought someone into your life who really listens to you, really understands. Think about all that stress that you've been carrying in your life. You don't deserve all of that stress, and you really deserve to feel attractive. You see, Satan's strategy is to give people what they want, but to make sure they eventually get what he wants them to have. That's what Erwin Lutzer says. Believe me, Satan wants you to have things. But if you get what he wants you to have, you'll find in the end that they are not worth having. Now, how does he get you to want what he has for you? We see the second strategy in the text. He questions God's word. Look at the second part of verse 1 again. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Haddon Robinson said this of Satan, he is a religious devil. He is a religious devil. Did God actually say? There's no warning signals. There's no flashing signs. I'm here to tempt you. He says, let's talk about religion. He doesn't come in and say, you know, I would like just an hour of your life so that I might damn you and destroy you. No, he says, let's talk about your interpretation of this Bible passage. How do you really think that this Bible passage goes? Could it be that your view on this is just a little too strict, limiting, dare I say, stingy on God's part if you take it that way? You see, Satan knows that he must convince you to doubt what is true. Listen, everything about the spiritual realm hinges on what is true. Everything. You want to know the most important question that you need to have an answer for, like you must have an answer for? Is the Bible God's word? Now, you might think to yourself, well, aren't there bigger questions than that? And I want to suggest to you this morning, everything hinges on truth, what you believe about God. How do you know what you believe about God is true unless we have some form of revelation that tells us who God is and what he's like and who you are and what you're like? How do you even know what to believe about God? How do you know that Jesus came on the cross and died for your sins and that if you place your faith in him, you will be saved by grace? The only only way to know that is 
whether or not the Bible is true. And it can't be half true. If, if even a bit of the Bible is false, then let's just be clear this morning, we are believing in a lie. You see, Satan doesn't come into your life and say to you, all of the Bible's false. All he needs to do is persuade you that some of the Bible is not true. You see what he does there? Once he has you there, well then, he has all of it. Now his spin in this passage is that he's saying that God's tyrannical and controlling and he can't be trusted. Because here's the truth, breaking down trust is the key to disrupting relationship. So the more that Satan can convince you to question God's character and motives instead of his own, of course, the more that you will be open to his suggestions. I read a book while I was studying for this series. It's called The Gospel According to Satan by Jared Wilson. And in the book, he goes through eight chapters about eight lies that people believe about God that sound like truth. It's funny that as you hear these lies and read them in the book, you almost feel like you're on your Facebook feed. I mean, they're just things that we kind of take without thought. Listen to a couple of them. God just wants you to be happy. You need to live your truth. Your feelings are reality. God helps those who help themselves. You know what is crazy about all of these statements? They somewhat ride the line of truth, okay? Here's the deal. They're close, but they're just not quite there. And that's how Satan operates. He lives in that space. Here's the line of truth. Satan starts off right here. Think about the statement, God just wants you to be happy. Now, on one hand, I think you can say theologically that God actually does care about happiness. I believe that God is eternally happy within himself. I believe that he has put such things of purpose in this world that when you pursue them for the sake of his glory, that you experience the optimum levels of happiness. But it's not all about that, surely. Or what about the thing that your feelings are reality? I'm going to give you a couple of truth bombs this morning. You ready for this? The first one is that facts don't care about your feelings. It doesn't matter how you feel about something. That doesn't necessarily make it right or wrong. The other thing, though, is this. God created you as an emotional creature. You have feelings. Now, some of you walk around like logical little robots and, you know, you don't feel anything and you don't let anything penetrate through and that's not good for you. You know when you're experiencing an emotion like depression that that's meant to tell you something and it affects you physically, spiritually, emotionally, and you got to put those through three things together because we can't really separate ourselves out? You get my point? Satan rides the line to get you off of the line. 
And, and he doesn't need to take you off the line far. You take someone off by a degree, they walk down that path for a couple of weeks, and it doesn't feel like they're very far from the truth, but what happens after years? Well, then you're years into that lie of feelings are reality, and you start justifying sin because I'm just following my heart. Or you become this self-absorbed creep who life's all about you because you're just pursuing your own happiness. You see, Satan knows that when he gets you on that trajectory, he's got you. He puts a little bait on the hook. You bite the hook. The hook's in your mouth and it's stuck now. And you can't get away. So we look at a third strategy now. Satan tempts you with doubt and desire. Genesis picks up in verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The final step is always to deny the truth of God's word. Ironically, Satan, the father of lies, is always accusing God of lying. The text in the Hebrew actually reads like this, not you shall surely die. So he takes the actual words of God and he just puts the word not in front of it. It's just an outright denial of the actual words that God has just said. How do you know that Satan is lying when he's talking? You know, when he's talking, he's lying. Look at this counter-narrative that he's spinning. His first lie is this. God doesn't really judge sin. You won't die. This is a denial of the doctrine of divine judgment. Eve says, there's going to be consequences as I do this. And Satan's response is, oh, wait a minute. You actually took that seriously? Come really? You took that seriously? Please. You know how God operates. God likes to say things forcefully so that he'll scare you away from it, but that's not actually what that means at all. You see, Satan takes her away from the truth. Now, why does he start here? Why start by disconnecting sin from consequence? Look at James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. We just looked at this recently. Pastor Harry, of course, did a great job with this uh, text. And as we look at this passage, we get a sense of why he starts here. It says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If you ever thought that in your life before, that you've been tempted and somehow God's led you down this pathway, and why is he leading you down this pathway? You got it all wrong. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Do you? I hope you do. Well, let me just tell you, it's always not to sin, okay? Always. 
You never need to be confused on that point. Now you pick up verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see what the Bible says? Satan only needs to get the ball rolling. That's all he has to do. He gets the ball rolling in temptation, and then as you follow that temptation, the flywheel starts spinning. You're now in this vicious cycle of James chapter 1. Remember, if you're a Christian, Satan wants you to lead an irrelevant, ineffective, unspiritual, ungodly life. If he gets the flywheel spinning, you're off in that track. It makes me think yet again of the screw tape letters. Like I said last week, we really can't have a sermon without C.S. Lewis. And uh, I remember in the beginning of the book, you remember it's Uncle Screwtape. He's a general in the demon army, and he's giving advice or coaching to his young nephew who's an underling. There's a young Christian who's just placed their faith in Christ. And of course, they've lost the battle for this man's soul. And that's true. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, nothing can take your salvation from you. You are eternally secure in Him. But, Screw tape tells Wormwood, you can still do a lot in this person's life. And then he goes on and proceeds to give him strategies and tactics so that this individual's life might count for nothing as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. Now here's a real gut question for you this morning. Do you want your life to count for something as far as the kingdom of God is concerned? Do you? Well, you have an enemy who does not sleep, an enemy who's well organized, an enemy who is bent upon the exact opposite of that for your life. He wants to get you into the James 1 cycle temptation, desire, sin, death, or in the case of a Christian, a wasted life. How do you avoid that trap? Well, before we get to that, let's look at one more lie. He tells Eve that God is not really good. You see that? Satan essentially says, God's holding back on you. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that there's this little God that's in you that's just waiting to be unleashed. And if you would just take a bite of that fruit, well, then you would know and see the universe in the same way he does. There's ulterior motives. There's a hidden agenda. He knows that if you do this, you will be like him. You see, what happens when you poison the well? When you poison the well, all of the water becomes tainted, doesn't it? And that's what Satan is aiming at. When he teaches you to doubt God's word, ultimately behind that, he wants you to doubt the goodness of God, the character of God, who he is. He wants to destroy the relationship. Have you ever been in a place in your spiritual life where you go through a series of really hard events 
And then your mind just starts reeling, and you start thinking to yourself, why is God doing all this to me? How could he possibly be good? How could he be just? How could he be fair? Or maybe there's something that you've really been praying for and desiring and wanting in your heart, and you wonder, why is God constantly holding back? Who do you think puts those thoughts in your mind? The enemy. The enemy. He has one bag of tricks, church. He hurls accusations. He argues his point of view. He suggests different interpretations. He assaults the character of God. This is what he does every time. He doesn't do anything differently. You know why? He doesn't need to. Through all the course of human history, those same strategies and tactics have worked every time. So the real question you've got to ask yourself is, how do I avoid becoming a casualty of his weapons and strategies? On well, two weeks, we're going to be talking through Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, you're going to learn about your offensive weapons and defensive weapons when it comes to spiritual warfare. Now, I say... Two weeks, because next week is, drum roll please. Thank you. Say it. Right, and I know all of you have signed up for that, right? I hope you have. We've been sending out about a billion RSVP requests, so I hope that you get on your computer today and you RSVP for that. We've got Missions Conference Friday night, Saturday morning, and here's the thing, there is lunch provided Saturday morning because I am not above bribing you. I know what you're thinking. We're talking about Satan tempting people, and this guy's talking about bribery. Well, let's just say this. This is not a satanic bribe. This is a bribe for your good. Come to Mission Conference Sunday morning. Of course, we'll have our normal service times, and I promise you, God's going to use this conference in your life to bless you. So in two weeks, Ephesians chapter 6, but before we get there, we have to take a look at the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. He perfectly withstood temptation. In fact, we see him do this in the wilderness in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to look at how he responded to temptation because this is how you and I must respond to it. The temptation account begins as Satan, Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness. And he says to them, him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now notice again, Satan's riding the line of truth. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. Now in this first temptation People tend to understand that he's talking about bread because, of course, Jesus has been fasting, so he is tempting him to subvert God's provision for him in the moment. But I think coupled with that is, if you are the Son of God means prove that you're the Son of God. He's stroking the strings of Jesus' ego. Now, here's the thing. Satan manipulates you through your ego. You are the puppet. He is the puppet master, and the strings are your pride, your ego. So that when you succumb to pride, he starts operating and manipulating you. Like I said last week, pride makes you stupid. 
Do we all need to say it aloud together again? Sunk in, good. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. Satan's second temptation, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. There he's quoting Psalm 91. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. He knows the Word of God, but he always rips it out of the context and he twists it for his purposes. He knows the Bible. Do you know the Scriptures well enough to know when he is ripping the Scriptures out of context? Well, look at Jesus' reply. You shall not... Did I get myself out here? I did. No, I didn't. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So that's Deuteronomy 6.16. Finally, Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms. I don't know exactly how this worked. It was likely a vision. He's looking at all these kingdoms like a screen reel or something like that. And the enemy of God says this to Jesus. He says, I will give you all of these if you fall down and worship me. Okay, this is Satan unmasked. This is really what he's all about. He wants to be worshipped. He wants you to worship him. He wants me to worship him. He wants the angels to worship him. Satan has been called God's ape. He is walking in the wake of the glory of God, and he's just trying to be good enough to be comparable to God, but he never can. He never will. He is just a pathetic poser. Now Jesus puts the nail in the coffin. He says, it is written, be gone, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that's Deuteronomy 6.13. So Christian, what is your single greatest weapon in spiritual warfare. Say it out loud. It's Scripture. It's the Word of God. That's the greatest weapon. Just like Jesus said, you shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. The big problem, though, is that too many of us only live for bread. We succumb in this world, in our mind and in our heart, to focusing on bread things, like career family obligations, and I hate to say this, but it's true, activities and schedule. And those things get us distracted from every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, one of the big words that's thrown around today that isn't really good and we shouldn't be proud of it is the word busy. You know what busy stands for? Being under Satan's yoke. That's what busy is. So don't live for bread. Earn it. Meet your obligations. But live for every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, as we close, I want to make this really practical by just asking two questions. Now, the first question is, do you have a daily Bible time with Jesus? A daily Bible time. Listen, 
we all grow in that discipline. And I want to help you out if you're not having a daily Bible time with him. I've got two reading plans out in the lobby. Grab them. One of them is a read through the Bible in a year. The other one is you just simply read through the New Testament twice in a year. You know what I love about plans is plans keep you focused, but plans also help you to see the whole biblical picture so that you don't just get stuck on one part of the Bible. I'm not talking about 23 of your 24 hours here either. I'm talking about 15 minutes. Start there. Get the Word of God in your life every day. The second question is, are you involved in a Word-based discipleship group? Second part of our mission over there, Worship transformation mission. So transformation has to do with here growing in Jesus in the context of community. We need one another to grow. Lone Ranger Christians are like sitting ducks when it comes to spiritual warfare. But as we link together as believers, as we get into word-based studies, as we challenge one another to grow, God does significant things. And right now, we've got women's Bible study, which you want to hear this? They have like 56 women signed up right now. I said 54 last service, and it just went up to 56. It's the biggest attendance they've ever had. They're studying the Gospel of Luke, inductive Bible study. It is a great place to be. There's Thrive Tables out there. There's Men's Activate, which is coming in the beginning of October. Get into a word-based discipleship group. And as you do these things, when Satan comes prowling, guess what? You're going to have your sword at the ready. Father, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth. You have given us an invaluable resource in this spiritual battle, the Bible. The Bible is our compass. It is our spiritual nourishment. It is our sword. It is your word. I pray that you will transform our minds through your scripture. I pray that you will give us crystal clarity on matters of truth. Lord, when the enemy comes and walks that line of truth, Help us to see it and to know the word. Satan hates to hear your word. He hates when we quote it. Lord, teach us to be disciplined in the word, both personally and in our discipleship community together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.